Welcome to FedSpeak, brought to you by Market News International. I'm Pedro da Costa, and it's my pleasure to welcome today's guest, William Rogers III, to this podcast. Bill is Vice President and Director of the Institute for Economic Equity at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, and he's also a former Chief Economist at the U.S. Department of Labor, so it'll be excellent to get his perspective on the labor market and the economic outlook more broadly. Thank you so much for coming on the program, Bill. Pedro, thank you for having me as a guest. Appreciate it. No, thanks again. So let's start with the job market, which I know is a major focus of your research. Um, with the unemployment rate at 3.6%, uh, some folks have described this as basically having attained full employment, but I know that you would likely push back on that perspective. So could you explain why? Yeah, simply put is that, uh, you know, we don't want to just rely on one statistic to describe or to characterize whether it's full employment. And uh, we have to look at uh, not only the unemployment rate, but we also have to look at what's called the employment population ratio. And that's the share of people who are in the civilian population, right, that are engaged in actively working. So they either have come out of the labor force, like many women um, ha um, have uh, in terms of recovering from the pandemic, or and or let's say they're a young, uh, young less skilled uh, minority who is uh, had time had difficulty searching for a job, but they're now able to to find a job because that search uh, is is easier. Um, and that and and if you look at the employment population ratio, we do see that there's been a, a strong recovery uh, for for most groups, but but that recovery, those levels that we were prior to the pandemic, that participation wasn't was it was it what it was like during, at the end of the 1990s boom? Right? We had low unemployment like we had today, but we also had high participation and that's a key difference. Uh, yes, it's, it's laudable to say, to, to, to be happy that we got, we're getting back to uh, the pre-pandemic because of what the economy and what families uh, have, have endured, uh, but, but where they were prior to the pandemic is not where I want Americans to be. We had about 38% of those households uh, saying that uh, they, they will constitute what's called ALICE, where ALICE stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained and Employed. It's developed by the United Way of Northern New Jersey. And it's a concept similar to a living wage, but it's basically saying we have about 38% of our households that didn't have enough resources to make ends meet. And that was prior to the pandemic. So that it, to the place where people are saying, let's get us back to um, that's one statistic. Another statistic or a piece of evidence that, again, is I don't think we're, full, we're near a full employment if, if getting back to where we were makes sense, is uh, we have some uh, evidence from, from some of our Federal Reserve surveys that show that prior to the pandemic, about 12% of households, if they had an unexpected bill of $400, they couldn't pay it. And then you add another 15 to 20% on of those households who have difficulty making that making that payment. So that's that's my that's my 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 pushback. <laughs> now that makes sense. In other words, you don't want to idealize the pre-pandemic baseline as as kind of set in stone and and not leave any room for improvement. And in that light, maybe we could go back up a little bit and perhaps you could talk a little bit about your work at the institute, uh, you know, what you guys do and maybe highlight some of your research findings. Yeah, well thank you for that opportunity. Yeah, we are it's, uh, we're called the Institute for Economic Equity, and we're coming up on our uh, first anniversary. I started, I believe, towards the end of the summer, 
last year at this time, I had thought I would never be, <laughs> be switching a job in the midst of a pandemic. But uh, my colleagues, new colleagues here at the Fed really made uh, me an offer that uh, so, so they say they, you know, I couldn't refuse. Um, and uh, I was also in a really good place per, uh, personally, with my family life. But professionally, though, what drew me to coming to this institute is it's an acknowledgement of structural and the scaffolding in, in our nation, in our labor market, in our economy, uh, isn't where it needs to be. Right? That we have a whole host of low and moderate income communities that even when the economy is doing really, really well, they still struggle and have difficulty. This institute is about trying to help those families move from surviving to thriving, right? Uh, that's, that is our, our vision. And so I think up to date, one of our signature uh, reports was a uh, state of what we call state of economic equity. It was a six part essay or six part series of essays uh, that were published right around President uh, President's, uh, Biden's uh, State of the Union address. And some of the key highlights were, that came out of that are essays. One was we talked to uh, community providers, third sector. They're feeling that we won't get back to normal or pre-pandemic conditions for another 12 months. And that was before the specter of inflation. Um, we also have some authors who wrote about how do we help restore resiliency? This is Anna Kent and Ray Bashar. And they came up with five uh, nuggets or five ideas. Uh, and that's not rocket science, but, but it's important that they're being said, such as financial stability, such as helping families restore a sense of emergency. Uh, and then also figuring out how for the future. Because one of the things we did see in this pandemic, right, in the explosion in the stock market and housing markets, that those at the upper fifth did really well. But we need to extend that kind of wealth creation to not only those people, but a, but a broad base. And so they talk about some other types of approaches. Uh, and then finally, and there's not finally, because there's, there's many more, uh, but uh, the other area I want to highlight, uh, so it's some other work by Anna Kent too, is the importance of childcare, right? That the pandemic for me, in many dimensions, right? Showed the inadequacies of so much of how our economy treats people. Right? And one of those was um, the ability to have access to uh, good, safe, right, and affordable and high quality right, child care um, that uh, many uh, women, moms, and even dads right, had to step out of the labor force to, to, uh, because they didn't have jobs, but, but to, uh, to take care of their children because that, that child care wasn't there. But that's just being scratching the surface. We're off and running and we're having a great time. That's great. Thanks for that, Bill. And uh, maybe we could follow up by if I could talk about uh, the state of the labor market. And I know you've done some work on the benefits of running the labor market hot. Um, so could you highlight some of those benefits and also maybe talk about some of the risks, particularly now that inflation is more of a concern than it's been, you know, right. Perhaps right. In, in most of my lifetime. <laughs> Mine too, <laughs> or at least, or at least I was not aware of it. <laughs> well, I was, I was aware of it because I grew up in hyperinflationary Brazil in the 1980s. But wow. American inflation is a new phenomenon for me. So yes, I understand. <laughs> yeah, um, some of the benefits. Well, number one is just seeing uh, the nexus of power shifting from employers to workers. 
And what does that mean? It means that employers have to do a part, do a better job or work a little harder to attract and to retain um, their empl employees. So we began to see as, as, as the economy, the unemployment rate, not only got below 4%, but stayed below 4%. That seems to be that little threat threshold that Richard Freeman, one of my former uh, colleagues, and I have been looking at over the decades, but that sort of below 4% threshold and being there consistently for a number of months, that's the real, that's when you really start to see that nexus of power shifting. So you saw what people were calling striketober at the end of last year, right, where employees or workers feeling they had, um, they had, they had more um, say and more power to be able to to say, hey, we need to lessen that gap, but get that gap or lessen that gap between wages and productivity. Right? There's that wonderful chart that the Economic Policy Institute uh, created in my, in my mind. They call it the clamshell chart where they show since the 1980s, right? Wages have been rising, productivity has been rising, but wages have been not rising as fast as productivity in this wedge. And so I've seen, so I, I see that this strong economy was able to begin to make, kind of make a dent in that. And, le and lessen some of that gap, um, not only just for the average worker, but for, as my former boss, the Labor Secretary Alexis Herman used to talk about, is that that 3.6%, that's an average over the US, right? If you look at young uh, minority men and women between 16 and 24 years of age who have no more than a high school degree, right? Their, uh, their prospects are, are the toughest. They're at the lowest part of that job ladder. And, and so when you have this type of economy, like less than 4% persistently for a number of months or a year, right, we've, you start to see in the data, the evidence that they even start to improve their, their employment and their wages. So um, it's, it's something that's uh, very, very important. A last thing I'll also say a benefit, uh, there are other employers or employees who are kind of viewed as marginal uh, by employers, people with disabilities, right? And so it's not just that minority, you know, the story is about minorities who are young benefiting, but there are other people in the economy who face structural barriers, um, where that can be discrimination or it could be transportation, uh, or, or the employers are not making the accommodations. So that's for people with disability. Uh, but, but all of those groups start to improve. And so now maybe, that's the big Maybe question. perhaps even people with criminal records? Criminal records. Yes, most definitely too. Yeah. Uh, that's right. That's right. And we've seen like some uh, uh, reforms in a variety of states where you're trying to, particularly for nonviolent drug offenders, which in many states, like my state, New Jersey, that's, that be, they became kind of the typical um, offender. And instead of putting them in uh, general population, uh, the New Jersey and other states have been trying to work with them and, and treating the treating the, the, the as a, as a drug addiction and treating it that way as opposed to uh, taking the incarceration route. And I think some of that is driven by the absence or the shortage of, of labor. Now, on the way, now, on the way you know, Americans have kind of had trouble keeping up with inflation. Now, this, now that inflation is a problem, you know, when does a hot job market become a, a sort of uh, self curtailing? Mm -hmm. phenomenon where it becomes too hot and perhaps there are labor shortages that that hamper that bargaining power that you've been talking about yeah my feeling is as, as long as productivity growth right is leading wage growth right then from an employer standpoint they shouldn't be uh, we shouldn't be a, a so concerned 
But I think the dynamic that's been setting up right now is we've seen like, that the inflation was, to me, was driven by price increases, was driven by on the on the production side, right? uh, with supply chain challenges, uh, and and what's happened now is that's as you said is is moving growing faster than wages, but in the last few months, what have we been begun to hear? We've begun to hear employees asking for three, four percent right wage increases in response to uh, the price increases. And now the next dynamic in this chain will be employers possibly, depending upon their industry and what they make, passing those wage increases on to consumers in the form of higher prices, right? Which then can potentially set off like this chain of expectations. And that's what that's what my my staff and I'm looking at, like the survey of consumer sentiment, uh, some consumer confidence and looking at expectations and seeing if those are evolving where people are starting to to feel that this is going to be unabated. Because uh, what will that do? That will then eventually choke off consumption, which will then choke off the demand for workers, which will then lead to firing. Sure. And and that sets up my, my last question nicely, which is, a, a broader question about the outlook. There have been kind of, you know, in part because of the decline in consumer sentiment related to inflation, also because of the rise in bond yields, there have been concerns in financial markets about the prospect of a recession. Whereas a few months ago, the R word was not mentioned anywhere. And now it's kind of talked about everywhere, as at least as a as a risk. I was wondering how you see the problem, you know, the chances and uh, what factors might contribute to to whether or not the recovery is sustained? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. And uh, it's, it's being pondered by a lot of people. Um, since it's, people's behaviors are starting to change, it's, it's, it's plausible. Um, it, you know, it's plausible. Uh, but I think it depends upon some choices. It depends upon choices that we make. Uh, and those choices are, number one, right, resolving this is the problems, the challenge, that what's going on in Ukraine, because um, that's the IMF and others are now start, have been starting to talk about the potential slowdown in the, in the world economy um, because of of, of, of that uh, of, of what Russia is doing there. Uh, so number one is really resolving that quickly and, and fast, and, and then and helping helping those families restore and, and, and rebuild. Um, number two is COVID. That uh, what's the path on COVID? It looks like you know, we're, we're we're moving in that direction of right, masks are now optional on on planes and other public places. Yet there are communities that are seeing some tip some some upward uh, movement. Um, comes down to again choices, uh, and then the other other pieces. What's the path of inflation? Right, that. Uh, I'll leave that the policy decisions to my president uh, Jim Bullard and his colleagues, but the path of inflation clearly and how it potentially influences expectations and influences expectations going forward. Those that's that along with Ukraine and, and COVID, those are the real big three important sets of choices that we have to deal with. And then the other piece is, as I said, I don't want the bar the bar to be pre-pandemic conditions and call that. Full employment. Part of the problem why we why we saw so much hurt, so much death, so much sickness, was because we had not done what the United Nations calls investing in human priorities, and that's investing in 
human capital, but also human capital, social capital, investing in communities to help and make them resilient. And if we do those kind of choices, uh, we can be, move beyond uh, what we were prior to the pandemic. All right, that's a great place to end. Thank you so much, Bill Rogers. He is the Director of the Institute for Economic Equity at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Thank you so much for joining FedSpeak.